0: So today's Palm Sunday, so uh, what I thought would be uh, engaging is to trace the second statement of Jesus beginning from Palm Sunday. So 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday Jesus rides into downtown Jerusalem down Main Street on a donkey. He's passing through a canyon of waving branches, palm branches that are echoing shouts of joy And so what's all the commotion about? After generations of foreign governmental oppression and occupation, finally Israel's deliverer has come. And Jesus is a sight for sore eyes to all the Jewish people. However, it's short-lived. Later that week, Jesus is captured, he's tried, he's convicted, he's beaten, he's tortured, he's nailed to a cross, and he's left there to die. And he's actually not the only one that's hanging on a cross that day. There are two others, one on each side. As the three of them are hanging there, dying, a conversation takes place between them, and that's what we pick up in Luke 23. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence... We're punished justly, but for, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So let's just kind of paint the picture first and get the context by which this statement came from, there are three people hanging on three different crosses. Jesus is one of them in the middle. He's hanging between two criminals. One of the criminals is just throwing insults at him. He's just bombing away. He attacks his identity. Hey, uh, hey, aren't you Jesus? Aren't you the one that's supposed to be God? So, so why, why, why is this criminal hurling insults and and uh? uh and just degrading Jesus well I don't know for sure I have a theory remember a few days earlier when everybody was lined in the city streets and palm leaves were waving and everybody was shouting about how happy they were that Jesus was there they were happy because they assumed that Jesus was going to overthrow government oppression restore the Jews to power as had happened many times in the Old Testament and I'm wondering if, if this criminal, as he's staring there, being, is, uh, hanging there staring at Jesus, if he's so filled with disappointment, and he's looking at him and saying, wait a minute, this is no deliverer, this is no leader, this is, this is no person who can help me. He's dying the same way I'm dying. He's no Messiah. It's, it would almost be the equivalent in our time, if you can imagine this, of some great leader that rose up in America that, was, that said, we're going to restore America back to its Christian roots. We're going to restore America back to its Christian values. We're going to overturn many of these drifts away from, these shifts away from Christian value." Christian morals, Christian living, we're going to restore. And that restoration begins in some way. And then all of a sudden the next scene we're looking on the news and you have that leader sitting in an electric chair about to be electrocuted to death uh, between two other people in electric chairs about to be electrocuted to death. And one of them looks over and says, Huh, you're no leader. How are you going to help our country from there? How are you going to fix this now? And you could see how the disappointment might have risen up inside of this criminal's life. Now, this criminal's just berating Jesus, and what's interesting to me is Jesus doesn't respond. Jesus seems to have a habit of doing that. When he was brought before the kangaroo court that had been paid to lie about him and was questioned, he remained silent. I don't know if you've ever felt that tension. Every time I watch a movie about the life of Jesus, regardless if it's an older one or a modern version, they always have that scene where Jesus is brought before the court. And, you know, you see how the charges have been trumped up because people have been paid off. To make up these lies, and then they appear one by one. And 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 from every angle, Jesus is just cross-examined and lied about, and this case is being built about him. And he just stands there, he just sits there, he just sits there quietly and he just takes it. I don't know how you feel about that. That goes against the grain of my personality in every possible way. I'm sitting there watching that, going, say something. I mean, I know how it ends. He's gonna be crucified, but every time I watch, I can't resist going, this time, do something. Fix it. It's not true. Tell him it's not true. Tell him that guy's a liar. Read that guy's mail. If you could say that the woman at the well had five husbands and you know what that guy's skeletons are in his closet, tell him. Always want him to always want him to do something. And there he is. Quiet. Why doesn't he defend himself? Why doesn't he at least tell the people in the room that these people are lying? They've been paid off. I think silence is a grace that we often overlook. And this grace is sometimes used when when the people asking the questions don't want the truth. Then silence is the best response. You know, the Bible has categories, (laughs) phases of silence in it. Why doesn't the Bible tell us more about Jesus' childhood? We have this phenomenal Christmas story, then poof, he's 12. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> That's a lot. And then he goes from 12, wow, you know, he's 30. Whoa. He's got disciples. What, what about all those other years? Aren't you at least curious what that was like? Or, or what was his life as a single man about? And then there's the parables he told. Sometimes we think if he would have only explained a little more what he wanted us to understand in the story. And because there's so many things we don't know about Jesus, our imaginations sometimes run wild trying to fill the blanks in. This is called uh, redemptive silence. Sometimes Jesus' silence and God's silence is given to us to draw us in, to lure us closer, to make us participate, to challenge our assumptions, to to question our stance, to whet our appetite. In a world like ours that tries to make our faith in God seem like some elaborate fairy tale, we're sometimes tempted to say things that maybe we shouldn't say. We're sometimes tempted to say more about what we believe than we can say or should say. In a noisy world like ours, silence is a contrast. God's not going to appear on a talk show. He's not going to defend himself. He's not going to go on the attack. Sometimes I think redemptive silence is God's way of inviting us and waiting on us to ask, to seek, and to knock. And so I'm wondering if this silence is actually loaded with invitation and conversation. And then there's the second criminal. This other criminal defends Jesus. He he says, this is crazy. And he tries to call off the attack. And then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This word remember is loaded with scriptural meaning. It means help me or deliver me. In the Old Testament, when God remembered individuals, God delivered them. So God remembered Noah, and he saved him from the flood. God remembered Abraham, and so he spared his nephew Lot. God remembered Rachel, and she had a baby. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and delivered the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. This criminal was saying to Jesus, Deliver me from the punishment that I deserve in eternity. He's not saying, make me more important or get me off the cross or remove from me the consequences of my sin. He's just saying, remember me. The one criminal like the crowd didn't get it. He's thinking, this is no deliverer. He's not going to be able to save the Jewish people. He can't even save himself. The second criminal is hanging on the cross thinking, this is the deliverer who delivers in the most important way. He doesn't deliver nations. He doesn't deliver governments. He doesn't deliver cultures. He delivers souls. Hey, I want to be one. Remember me. And then there's Jesus' statement that is made right in between these two fellows. Right in this very context, it was where Jesus died and it was right in the middle of this exact atmosphere that Jesus says to the second criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, that statement is amazing to me for four reasons. If you have something to take notes with, I'd encourage you to jot a few of these thoughts down. Here's the first reason that statement is amazing to me today you'll be with me in paradise or let me say it another way today you'll be with me in paradise today that brings the question up what happens to us when we die Where where do we where do we go it seems obvious from Jesus statement to this dying man that you and I are immediately ushered into Jesus presence when we leave this world into paradise now I want you to think about the power and the comfort that that would bring to all of us when we have a loved one who is a believer who leaves this world just think about the same for a minute if you have lost a loved one who is a believer this is very comforting in one moment they're lying there suffering surrounded by a broken world in our presence in the very next moment they're walking in health surrounded by paradise in Jesus presence whoa that is intense you imagine that literally mid-stride one foot is sitting on the brokenness of this world and the next foot is walking with Jesus in paradise. And that makes me that makes me look forward to that. The second reason I think that this thought is amazing is it's Jesus' open armed acceptance of this thief. I, I mean it seems amazing to me when I compare Jesus' reaction to this man's plea to some of the stories I've heard in religious circles in some churches. Uh, it's almost more fascinating to me what he didn't say. So he's hanging there on the cross. The thief says, remember me? Jesus didn't, this does not say, do you believe in the Trinity? Right? He doesn't say, have you been baptized in water by immersion? He doesn't say, where do you stand on the end times? He doesn't say, Do you believe the Bible is the infallible word of God? Jesus saw the man was reaching toward him and he offered him paradise. That, that blows my mind. Apparently, it doesn't take much to become a Christian. You just have to meet Jesus and accept the forgiveness that he offers. Jesus is the God of the second chance. He didn't even ask him if he's a church member. You believe that? Phenomenal. The third reason this statement is amazing to me is Jesus promise of paradise is loaded with meaning. The Greek word for paradise is actually a transliteration from Persian that meant the king's garden. Today you will be with me in the king's garden. Now, the king's garden in Persia was a special place. It was private. It was walled. It was filled with profound beauty. If you were to be honored by the king, oftentimes it would mean that you would be granted access to the king's garden and you would be allowed to go for a time and enjoy the beauty of the king's garden. I love this picture of the king's garden. Through Jesus... You and I are invited to enter the garden. I, I, I'm an admirer of nature. I, I love to visit or to see beautiful places. And I've been to places in my life that I would consider paradise. They're so awesomely, incredibly beautiful that they seemed unreal to me. Stacy and I, back in the 90s, had an opportunity to travel to the Netherlands. And I don't know if you know anything about their climate, but their climate is almost like a perfect um, ecosystem for flowers and uh, things like that. So we went to Kukunoff Gardens. And I can still remember, as we traveled there, uh, it happened to be tulip season. Tulips were in full bloom. And because of the canal system and the, the soil is rich and black and the grass was dark green, we saw tulip fields that would be like the equivalent of cotton fields or corn fields that we might see in America. And, and they were many, many, many football fields long and wide. And when, when we were driving from the airport to the hotel, we were going down the highway in the Netherlands. As far as your eye could see on the side of the road were these gigantic, maybe maybe as wide as one entire uh, section of these pews, and, and uh, yards, hundreds of yards long would be stripes of tulips. They would plant them by color. You would see purple and red and, and uh, white and yellow. It looked like somebody had taken a gigantic magic marker and just highlighted the earth. And as we whipped by in the car, I, I, I caught myself putting my hand up on the window trying to touch them. Like, oh, oh, is that, that can't be, oh. I mean, it was like the Skittles rainbow had landed on earth. I thought, I just was trying to, I was mesmerized by them. They were incredibly beautiful. And I can remember saying, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. And Stacy said to me, you say that about every beautiful place we go. And I say, yes, I do. I really, really do. The thought of spending eternity in the king's garden with people I love without hate or violence or stress or sickness or fear in Jesus' presence sounds like paradise to me. Over time, the word paradise came to be used of the, uh, of the gardener of Eden by the Jewish people. So the Jewish people began to understand paradise as uh, as the Garden of Eden. So they would refer to it, the Garden of Eden. Adam Adam and Eve began in paradise. So that language evolved, and Adam and Eve were expelled from this garden. So uh, if you think about it, Eden, after all, was the king's garden. Not a king's garden, the king's garden. And Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because they disobeyed God. And an angel with a flaming sword was stationed there forbidding humanity to enter the garden again. Paradise was lost to humanity. And while on earth, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. And he was crucified in a garden at Calvary. And he was buried in a garden. And when Jesus rose from the dead, Mary mistook him as a gardener. You think there might be a reason for all of that? I believe the New Testament is telling... Is telling us in these words of Jesus uh, to a dying criminal that Jesus was opening the door to the king's garden once again. Can you believe that? Paradise was lost. And now Jesus, as he's dying there on the cross, is opening the door through his suffering, through his death, through his resurrection. Jesus removed the curse that had banished mankind from the garden, from paradise. And listen to this. And he's inviting us to return to paradise with him. And the first person he invited to paradise with him was a hardened criminal and a thief on a cross. Wow. Phenomenal. The first person he opened paradise to was a guy that was being crucified and punished for his sin next to him. Here's the final reason this thought's amazing to me. Jesus died the same way that he lived. Jesus didn't leave everything to question. There are some things that he told us directly. One of them was his purpose. Jesus told us he gave his own self-stated mission statement. He said "Uh, the son of man came here's the reason I'm here to seek and to save the lost. This was the purpose of his life. Now, when a person's dying, um, who they really are comes out, right? There's There's no reason to hold back now, I'm running out of time. What's really on their mind is spoken. What's really important to them is revealed. And what we find in Jesus dying last few hours is another layer of revelation about who he really is. Jesus really loves lost people. He isn't trying to build church membership. He's not trying to build a super denomination. He's not trying to uh, uh, create some ego-stroking following. His love is genuine and his concerns authentic. And even as as he's dying, he's loving a lost man. As he lives, so he died. Now, I want you to back up for a minute and just just walk through a, a, a quick reflection on Jesus' life And his encounter. Maybe Jesus in his lifetime shared with hundreds or maybe even thousands of lost people. He talked to the woman at the well. He defended the woman who was caught in adultery. He talked to this religious leader, Nicodemus, who came to him at night. He talked to the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus was the tax collector who had shimmied up a tree so that he could see Jesus coming. And Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house and shares with him, despite the cultural uh, nuances of that. The woman who brought the alabaster box was told to us by Scripture to be a sinner. Blind Bartimaeus, who was on the roadside, He touched lepers and he ate with unclean people. And now, even as he's dying, he finds himself as a friend, once again, of another lost person. On Palm Sunday, the crowd thought Jesus was bringing paradise to them. But by Friday, he brought a criminal to paradise. Phenomenal. At best, at best, this criminal is just seconds old. In his faith. And isn't it interesting that he's the one taking up for Jesus? He's saying, hey, hey, hey. Hey, guy over there on the other cross. We're getting what we deserve. This guy did nothing. At best, he's seconds old in his faith. And he's already speaking up for Jesus. That's a lot more than we could say about his closest disciples. Most of whom were nowhere to be found. Isn't that a strange truth? That oftentimes the people who know the most do the least. And those who know the least do the most. Isn't that a strange truth? And it's also strange how people react to the truth of Jesus. Two people hanging on a cross, obviously with nothing to lose... Both men hear Jesus' words. Both saw his perfect example. Both were dying. Both needed forgiveness. One unrepentant criminal died as he lived, and the other one believed and followed Jesus to paradise. What does that that say to us? If everybody Jesus reached out to didn't accept him, then everybody you and I reach out to is not going to accept us Jesus example is perfect it's flawless his beyond that his love is perfect beyond that his motive is perfect always true always right always loving always the best approach always says it the right way always uses wisdom always knows what to say and what not to say always knows when to talk and when not to talk always does the right thing always follows the Holy Spirit always uses the gifts of the Spirit when the moment is right always and even then there were those who rejected one of the things that I think we have to get over in the American church is we keep waiting to reach out for those people who will accept I don't think God ever really gave us that foreknowledge. We have to reach out with the understanding that in our own imperfection, some people are just not going to accept us or God. But what does, that, what does that say to us? There's a great song, and I'll ask our worship team to come, that is just uh, stuck in my heart lately. And it's by Casting Crowns. Uh, Maybe you've you've heard or listened to them or know their music. This song has just sort of grabbed me. And uh, when I hear it, it it, uh, just sort of echoes in my heart. And what I wanted to do this morning is I just wanted to read uh, the words of this song by Casting Crowns. The title is, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Here's how it goes. Here's the first verse. Jesus, friend of sinners, we've strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around, but never looking up. I'm so double-minded. A planked eye saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. Here's the second verse. Jesus, friend of sinners, the one who's riding in the sand, made the righteous turn away and the stones fall from their hands. Help us to remember we are all the least of these. Let the memory of your mercy bring your people to their knees. Nobody knows what we're for, only what we're against when we judge the wounded. What if we put down our signs, crossed over the lines, and loved like you did? Here's the course. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners... Open our eyes to to the world at the end of your pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. You love every lost cause. You reach for the outcast. For the leper and the lame, they're the reason that you came. Lord, I was the lost because I was the outcast. But you died for sinners just like me, a grateful leper at your feet. It's a powerful song, isn't it? Jesus, friend of sinners, man, that's a that's a um, phenomenal, phenomenal title, Jesus, friend of sinners. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the fast that we did this year, and I was thinking about uh, the vision of the table, and I was thinking about um, how we've prayed and talked and And reached out and, and how now here we are uh, seven days from Easter and and what an opportunity in our culture to reach out. what an opportunity it's so fascinating to me that Jesus, in his divinity, if you could this is sort of an artificial division, but I think it 'll be clear Jesus in his divinity was hanging on the cross dying for the sins of the whole world but Jesus in his humanity this is a human man was reaching out to save the guy next to him Jesus in his the macro story is Jesus died for the whole world The micro story is as Jesus is dying he still loves the lost isn't that incredible there was really not an opportunity to reach anybody else everybody around him had already made their mind up that they were against him or hated him and then there was the few followers of his who had knelt to the cross that were for him they were following no one else was this guy's hurling insults there's actually only one human on earth left possible to reach and what does he do Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Can you believe that? You can limit this guy in every possible way and he'll find somebody to reach. It's his heart. I thank God that somehow or another I was one of those lost causes that he wouldn't give up on and he kept reaching. And maybe you were. So so I'm thinking this Easter we have an opportunity to reach out the way that Jesus did. We have an opportunity to share, invite. Next Sunday morning we'll have three services. Man, we've just been praying that during this Easter season we would see people in this city take a step toward Jesus. For some people, that step's going to be starting a relationship with Him. For some people, that step's going to be a phenomenal, life-changing, spiritual breakthrough. For some people, that step's going to be a step closer. Paul the Apostle told us, some water, some sow, some some plant, some harvest. There's a role for us to play. want to ask you as we close this service to pray with me, that God, in his mercy, would use us to reach out in this city. So, in your, at the end of your pew, there is a card, if you see them, just take a couple of them and pass them over, just pass them to the person next to you. Everybody get one. While you're passing those, while you're passing those out, you can go on our website to Kingwoodchurch.com and we have on the scrolling banner, you'll see something called an Evite. What you can do is pop that up, and you can, you can see it here, and you can pick one of those, and you can send an email invitation to someone for Easter service. So you can send one of those. You can hand some of these out. Call, text, invite, share. Some of you, I've heard your stories. You've, you've You've been reaching out to someone for months now. I don't know when the right time is. I just know Jesus loves people. And maybe this Easter is the right time for you to invite that family member, that friend that you've been reaching out to. And God will show you. God will lead you. He'll give you wisdom. Just don't not do it because you're afraid you'll get rejected. Just don't let that be the reason you don't do it. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, wait. Paul was called, uh, uh, remember when he got the restraint, don't go to this city? We we usually don't think about that in being spirit-led. Don't go there. I know they need the gospel, but don't go there now. And there are those moments that the Holy Spirit says, not yet. I encourage you. Listen to that nudge of the Holy Spirit. But if you've got your card, would you just stand with me this morning? A friend of mine made a statement to me about eight years ago, or nine, that's challenged my life. And and I it's just kind of it continues to challenge me. He said, You remember Jesus' mission statements to seek and save the lost? And he said. We can't really say that we're following Jesus if His mission statement isn't our mission statement. Because that's where that, that's where He went. We can't say we're following Him. We can't say we're putting our feet where His footsteps were unless His mission statement is our mission statement. So this Easter, I'm just encouraging you: would you make would you make Jesus' mission statement? As Jesus is dying on the cross in His final hours. He's saying to this guy, this criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. So here's what I want to do. I want us to pray together this morning. And then I want to just ask you to spend this week in your, in your Holy Week devotional praying and asking the Holy Spirit for opportunities. But if you've got that postcard, would you just hold it up this morning like this? Would you just kind of raise it up? And I just want, to, I want, to, I want us to pray together this morning. And here's what I want to pray. I want you to pray this with me. I want you to ask God to make you like Jesus. <laughs> and, and how was Jesus? He, he loved lost people. He was a friend of sinners. Lord, this morning as we close this service, we just use this little card as a point of contact. And Lord, we ask you this morning that you would make each one of us missionaries. You would make us courageous and wise. You would help us to know the steps to take and the steps not to take. Lord, I pray this morning that you would continue, Holy Spirit, continue the work that you started in our life to make us like Jesus. Would you just pray that, Lord, make me like you. Make me like you, Lord, in every way. Make me like you. Lord, transform me. Change my mind. Change my heart. Change my life. Make me like you, Lord. Make me love what you love. Make me see what you see. Make me feel what you feel. Make me hear what you hear. Lord, I pray you would put glasses on my eyes this week that I might see the way that you see. Through things. Not the way that they appear, but through things. Lord, that I might know the mission that you've sent me on. Lord, I pray that you'd allow these little cards, these e these invitations, these phone calls, these lunches and sharing coffee. Lord, I pray you'd allow these moments to be, to be like missionaries sent into the darkness of this county. And Lord, we would, we would see people come to you. We pray these things.